Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. This new solar generator has double the capacity and is expandable, so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4Patriots.com slash Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4Patriots.com slash Lisa. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Up next, The Truth with Lisa Booth, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. So the Omicron variant is sweeping the nation, and with it has come fear and new draconian government measures. Cities like Boston and Chicago are now implementing vaccine mandates. You've got to be vaccinated to go out to dinner, to go to museums, basically just to live your life. But what's the point of it when the vaccines don't stop transmission, when vaccinated people like Senators Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker, who both said they've recently got the boosted? Well, they both just got covid. So what do you need to know about all this? What do you need to know about Omicron? What do you need to know about this incredibly transmissible variant? Is it going to get us closer to herd immunity? Does the vaccine provide any protection at all? This week, I turned to Dr. Jay Bhattacharya for the truth. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He's also one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. He is also recently opened the Academy for Science and Freedom with Hillsdale College, along with Dr. Scott Atlas and Martin Kolder. You guys are familiar with them. They both have been on this show. All of these people, including Jay Bhattacharya, they've come. They've given you the truth. They're honest people. They're people we should be turning to for the truth and all of this. also want to talk with Dr. Bhattacharya about how Fauci and the NIH have intentionally shut down dissenting voices and the truth and all of this. We're going to get into how exactly they have done that, how the NIH has done that, and how they control so many of the scientists in the country through grant money and funding. So a lot to get into. It's going to be super interesting. We'll get you the truth on all of this with Dr. Jay. Bhattacharya. Stay tuned. I'm so excited for this next episode as we're seeing this this new variant in the country, the panic, the draconian measures, rinse and repeat, which is something we're all familiar with. So I'm so happy to have Dr. Jay Bhattacharya on the show, someone who has been a voice of reason throughout all this chaos. Doctor, thanks so much for joining the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So I'm actually one of the unlucky recipients of this new variant. I have spent the past week now just getting over COVID. So fortunately, I'm uh, on the other side of it almost, but it definitely kicked my butt. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I mean, I think it could, you know, there's, there's Delta still floating around. So I think the evidence on Omicron by itself is that it's it's milder, but COVID isn't a joke. Right? I mean, obviously, so many people have died from it. So it's, it's something we should uh, take seriously, but it's not something we should destroy our society around, which is unfortunately, I think we've done uh, in large way, in many ways over the last two years. Well, it definitely has. And, you know, you're one of the, the few people out there really 
arguing against some of those draconian lockdowns. You know, what's so interesting is there's recently a FOIA request from the American Institute for Economic Research that uncovered emails where Dr. Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins were scheming against you and the other individuals who signed the Great Barrington Declaration. What did that feel like to sort of be on the receiving end of, uh, you know, the government's propaganda and attacks, really? I mean, it was really surprised. I mean, I guess I, in a sense, I'm not surprised that it happened. Surprising to see it in black and white. The last year and some have been quite difficult because what, what's happened over the past year and a half and so is that after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, which which we in it was with me, uh, Sunetra Gupta, from professor at Oxford University. She's a fantastic theoretical epidemiologist uh, and and actually practical epidemiologist. And then Martin Kuldorf at Harvard University, amazing biostatistician. We wrote this in October 2020, and the idea was very simple. The COVID has an enormously bad effect on people who are older. It's a, also a thousand-fold increase in the risk of death and severe disease if you are older versus if you're young. At the same time, the lockdowns have been devastating, just devastatingly harmful. Tens of millions of people thrown into starvation worldwide, missed cancer screenings resulting in breast cancers that, are, that should have been caught earlier, colon cancers. The psychological effect, on, especially on kids, has been enormous. So we called for an end to the lockdowns and focused protection for the elderly especially for the old and other, other vulnerable. What we hoped for was an open conversation with the public health community about how best to protect the older, older population without a lockdown. Because the idea up, up until this month is the only way to protect anybody was a, was a lockdown to stop the disease from spreading. But we knew that was not possible. Because you know, what the lockdowns do is, does is it protects a certain class of rich people who can, who can stay home at work and not lose their jobs and not, not anyone else. So we, we put this out hoping that, to open a conversation Instead, what was we were met with it was just this, this like vilification campaign, this campaign to to say that we wanted the virus to rip society, to kill people, as if we were somehow ghouls that wanted to destroy to destroy the lives of people. And I was I wondered what was the source of that, and the Francis Collins email that were released through FOIA reveals that the NIH. With the, the, including the head of the NIH and Tony Fauci, the, the head of the NAID, uh, they spread those lies. They worked to try to get the media to amplify them. And it led to so many interviews with reporters where they were asking me why I wanted to let it rip, why I wanted to, a herd immunity strategy, which, which, is, no, which is nonsense. Um, and it made my life much more difficult, with my, even with my colleagues who uh, sort of fell for the propaganda. Well, and what's so odd is, I mean, science is not supposed to be this consensus, this group think. I mean, you're supposed to have diverging opinions. And so when did this change and why do you think it, it changed? Because we, we've really seen this take fold in a way that is so different than, you know, times of the past. So where is science today and how do you think that happened? I mean, I think this, it's always been true for science. Science is such a powerful, beautiful thing. It's, it's like an engine for producing things that tend to be true, right? So learning, learning how the, the, the material world functions. Science is so powerful. It's achieved so much. But I think what's, what's happened over the, the, I don't know exactly the time frame, but certainly uh, we've seen this during the pandemic. Science has become a thing where essentially you believe in it just because it's science rather than understanding the mechanisms by which science tends to produce truth. And so like you can see this with the almost crazy worship of Tony Fauci or even the way he talks about science. He says things like, if you disagree with me, you're not simply just disagreeing with a man, you're disagreeing with science itself. He's turned science into a god. He's a high priest of science when he says things like that. That's not the right way to think about science. At least it's exactly what you said. Science is a process by which truth reveals itself uh, with open-mindedness, tolerance, uh, and an openness to discussion, um, also correction by data, right? So if you believe A and I believe B, we disagree. Well, we agree on an experiment and it resolves it. And you're, it turns out you're right. And I'm like, oh, darn, I'm, you're right. And then I say, well, then I you know, buy you dinner or something. And then I say C and we do the next thing, right? Then well, slowly over time, by that dis open discussion, we learn things about the real world. Instead, during the pandemic, what's happened, it was essentially replaced with this attitude you see in this letter and also that Francis Collins, the head of NIH, wrote, and also what Tony Fauci has said uh, of science as a dictum, as on, given from on high. The science has said X, Y, or Z, 
There is no fighting over it. There's there's no there's no uh, disagreeing over it. There's no uh, recourse to any data that would would solve it. Instead, you just propagandize. You demonize people who disagree with you, and you push them to the outside so that that uh, scientific opinion is outside the bounds of uh, polite discussion. I mean, that's essentially exactly what Francis Collins and the NIH did to uh, the Great Barrington Declaration. Well, and they did this at the beginning of COVID as well, the beginning of the pandemic of trying to shut down any talk about the virus having escaped from the Wuhan lab there. They did it in The Lancet. You had Peter Daszak and a bunch of scientists wrote that letter basically trying to shut down any alternative thought process of, oh, no, it had to have come from the wet market, which even China is saying that didn't happen now. You know, so they, they try to shut down. So it, there just seems to be this really odd desire by the people in charge, people like Dr. Fauci, of just shutting down any alternative viewpoint in a way that is really dangerous. And, and to me, I think the reason why everyone should be concerned about this is what information are we not getting? What critical information do we not know that is not being shared, that is not being brought to light, that could potentially save lives because of this group think because of the shutting down, because of the labeling, anything that is outside of what Dr. Fauci deems acceptable as conspiracy. You know, what information are we not learning right now that we need to know? I mean, that's, that's always the problem when you treat uh, science as if it were established out of facts with a high priesthood, right? But what if the high priesthood is wrong? How would you know? Uh, there's no there's no fighting with them reasonably uh, with, with data and with, with reason. Instead, uh, what you have is dictums some of which may be right, some of which may be wrong. It's impossible to tell because it hasn't been subjected to the test that you normally would subject scientific ideas to. Every scientific idea is subject to challenge in that same same exact way. It has to be. What do we not know? I, and I agree with you. Like the, a, a great example is this, this idea that it couldn't have possibly been a lab leak, right? Well, I, I mean, in fact, it was conspiracy theory even suggested for a long time. Uh, the, the the revision on this is, is, is I think, going to be healthy. But a lot of the sort of circling of wagons on a lab leak, it, frankly, it smacks of like a cover-up to me. Um, whether it whether was a lab leak or not, I don't, I don't know for certain. It's, it's, it's going to be challenging to find out. But, at the, but certainly, we should be allowed to ask questions around, along those lines. Same thing with like, actually, I worked on a study in the early days of the epidemic called the Santa Clara seroprevalence study and the LA County seroprevalence study, where we, what we tried to do is figure out how widespread the disease was in the, in the population. Um, what we found was that in April of 2020 in Santa Clara and L.A. County, there were 40 or 50 times more infections than cases, which meant a few things. One, the mortality rate from the disease was much lower than people had been saying because the denominator, the number of people infected was much higher, but the deaths were the same. So you just didn't, it didn't. Uh, but the second and equally important, probably more important is that by that meant that it was so widespread by April of 2020, there was already too late to have a zero COVID kind of policy that we've been following. The idea for the policy all along has been, oh, well, we just need to suppress the, the spread of the virus down to low enough levels so we can open society again. Well, I mean, if you look at the data from April of 2020, there was no chance that was going to be true, that's successful in, in, mo in most places in the world. Uh, in fact, that's exactly what's happened. Like We've done so much to try to lock down and, and get this virus down to zero that we've been unable to stop the spread of the disease. We don't have a technology to do that. The, Tony Fauci wrote a letter, an email about that Santa Clara study uh, that was in an earlier email dump from through, obtained through FOIA, where he had a five pages of redacted t text that was redacted about the study. Uh, and uh, he, at the, the, at the end of the five pages, he said he had a, a line saying, "Well, we should contact one of the authors of the study." It was, it was one of my colleagues who, who was a very senior author on the study. Uh, he never was contacted. I would dearly love to know what those five pages of, of redacted text said, because what should have happened in response to that study and, and a whole bunch of other seroprevalence studies is a revision of thinking about what the right policy should be. And yet, just like with the lab leak, just like with the Great Barrington Declaration, the, the NIH closed ranks, the CDC closed ranks and decided to go full on down the lockdown strategy that's led to such disaster the last two years. Well, and so I remember, you know, I was one of the people screaming from the rooftops because I was reading stuff that Dr. Ioannidis was writing. I was seeing the study that you just talked about that you worked out out of Santa Clara. And then we had also, I think, closely after that, there was the study out of New York. There was also Miami-Dade County and all of it was sort of saying the same thing, that we were missing cases by like, you know, I think it was something like 10 to 65 fold or something, which means that it's a lot less deadly than we originally thought. And then you had also, 
I think it was New York's own data was saying that the majority of the new hospitalizations were people who are staying at home. So to your point, we had all this information in front of us that the decisions we were making were the wrong ones, yet people, uh, you know, continue down that road. But, you know, here we are again, sort of in the same position where we have this new variant out that is seemingly as contagious as the measles, yet they're still trying to, you know, revise the old bag of tricks to stop something that we can't stop. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the problem is that if exposed to actual discussion and data, the people who have supported the lockdowns really have no argument, right? They'll point to places like Australia and New Zealand and say, well, look, they, they got to zero. But in fact, they didn't get to zero. You can see the cases exploding in Australia now. Um, the, 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 uh, you can see the cases are, you know, sort of coming back. They've had more lockdown days than any place on earth. Um, and yet the disease is still floating around. The way that, uh, that, that the lockdowners have behaved, it's as if they said, well, there was no other possible alternative response to this, this virus other than to, to, to do the kind of you know, school closures and uh, uh, church closures and, and, and closing businesses and, uh, and, and sort of ending normal civic life. Well, that didn't work was a complete disaster for the poor, the vulnerable, both in the, uh, both in the, best, in the developed world and the developing world. The, to pretend as if we had no choice, that, it's, that that wasn't actually a policy choice, is completely disingenuous. And in order to maintain the illusion that we had no choice, they had to shut down the scientific debate about it. And uh, so the, the, the campaign, the propaganda campaign about the, the Great Barrington Declaration, essentially the similar kind of uh, shutting down a debate around how widespread the virus actually was with the seroprevalence studies. By the way, there's now a hundred or more of these studies that found basically the same thing, like a huge, a, a, a very large fraction of, of, of cases that are infections not identified and a disease more widespread than realized. Um, and that's been true, as I said, from the beginning of the epidemic. Uh, so that they had to shut that debate down in order to get the policy through, because if that policy was subject to cold reason, it, no one would have gone for it. Instead, they relied on panicking the population to generate support for a policy that has been utterly destructive. Quick commercial break. More with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya on the other side. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. You could be one of them. Sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be. With the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X, Folks say this new solar generator from 4Patriots is worth its weight in gold. Why? Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Or other devices like an electric blanket, microwave, RV air conditioner, or even an electric wheelchair. You also get 12 outlets, including four AC outlets so you can power more devices at once. And two USB-C outlets, which can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot power generators. Go to 4patriots.com slash Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash Lisa. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Where do you think we would be today if we had followed the Great Barrington Declaration and protected the elderly and essentially allowed, you know, the rest of society to go back to life? I think we'd have had many, many, many fewer deaths from the virus itself because we would have uh, we would have protected the, better protected the elderly. I, it's not, I don't think there would have been zero deaths because this is a terrible virus and it's really hard to stop. But we managed to protect the laptop class. That was the policy we followed. We shielded the laptop class. We could instead have thought to our have thought about how best to protect the actually vulnerable. So we would have had many fewer deaths from the virus. Uh, we actually might have even had less of this viral evolution. And then the other thing that we would have had is we would have had an enormously uh, less damage from the lockdown arms. Right? Kids would have spent the last year and a half year year and some in school rather than. Uh, quote, learning from home as if it's as it really possible to do that. So kids would be leading better lives as a result of it. And by the way, that will have long-term impacts. We have, we have kids that can't read. We have kids, there's been a collapse in, in uh, learning um, that has long-term impacts on the lives of children. Just tragic increase in depression and anxiety in, in kids and young adults. Um, we would have avoided all of that. We would have avoided the. Ten, there's now, I mean, there's data that show that tens of millions of people around the world are starving as a consequence of these lockdowns. Tens of millions, um, you know, because you do, you have a country, a poor country, many people on the verge of poverty. They've restructured their economies to fit into the global economy over the last 20 years, lifting a billion people out of poverty over 20 years. Overnight, we we renege on those promises, and as a result, tens of millions of people, their income drops below one, two to two dollars a day, and they starve. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, those those lives would have been saved. Uh, hundreds of thousands of children in in uh, South Asia, according to, uh, to a report indeed by the UN in March of this year, have already starved to death. Right. Uh, so you you have uh, all that collateral harm that's going to have consequences for decades avoided if we follow the Great Barrington Declaration. You talked about the evolution of the uh, virus or the vaccines to blame for that. I've seen the argument made that we have leaky vaccines that don't provide immunity, don't stop transmission, and therefore are, you know, have led to this new variant of uh, Omicron. What, what are your thoughts on that? I, I mean, the, the evolution of the virus is, is, is hard to predict, but it responds to the environment that it, it sees, right? So the virus... Um, when you have a vac- vaccinated population, um, there, it creates an ecological niche where uh, a, a variant of the virus that can infect the vaccinated uh, is more likely to succeed in, in sort of replicating itself. Um, so it's, it wouldn't be surprising that, to me, to find a widespread vaccination with a vaccine that doesn't stop disease spread could have contributed to this evolutionary process and, and uh, move the, the viral evolution along a certain line. If we followed the, the, the Great Parenting Declaration, the pandemic would have been over earlier because what would have happened is, is that through normal activity, younger populations would have had more exposure to the virus. It's just, I mean, that's just a normal way. Of, but because the harm to younger people from being exposed to the virus is so much lower than the old, they would have died at much lower rates and they wouldn't have been exposed to the lockdown harms. And so thus would have been benefited from from the policy. It's hard to say exactly with any kind of precision because you have to play this game of like what if and play the game of what evolution would have looked like had we gone down a different path. But it is clear that the policy itself, both of the vaccination and also the lockdowns, changed the path of viral evolution. Well, and what's interesting is there used to be this game of, oh, it's the unvaccinated's fault, you know, these dirty unvaccinated people. And now that you have vaccinated and even people who are just recently boosted to get it, you know, now it's, oh, it's no one's fault. It's, you know, the dynamics and the conversation have completely changed surrounding COVID now that we're seeing that the vaccines aren't protecting people from getting COVID at this current moment. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate. Uh, we should never have come to a point where public health was promoting the idea that it's uh, somebody's fault to get sick. We don't make you feel guilty for being sick. That is that is bad medicine, and that's bad public health. What we do is we treat people who get sick with compassion. That's the right way to message around it. And if we have a messaging strategy, it leads people to believe that anyone who gets sick is somehow lesser, or somehow uh, hasn't been careful, or is I mean, essentially othered. That is bad public health. And that's clearly what's happened the last two years. And so now to see a reversion to that and say, well, it's not your fault if you got sick as soon as the laptop class starts getting sick, um, I just, it's frustrating. I mean, I, of course, it is true that is the laptop class is not, it's not their fault for getting sick. This is, a, this is a infectious virus that spreads very easily. And so it's very hard to, you know, hard to protect yourself uh, from it. So it's not their fault. But it's, it does strike me as, as curious that. Now we're finally getting that message from public health when we should have been getting that message all along. Really, there's been this illusion of control over the spread of the virus that's fed this. We somehow uh, spread the, the idea around that if we were just we were just good enough, obeyed the rules hard enough, we can protect ourselves and others from the virus. But that, that was a lie. There was no technology we possessed or possess currently to stop the spread of this virus. And it's not anybody's fault for getting it. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is we we keep hearing this argument of, okay so we know that the vaccines aren't stopping transmission. That's evident when you have people like Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, who said they were just recently boosted, uh, you know, having recently gotten uh, covid. But so we keep hearing this argument that it's still you still need to get it because it's still protecting people. It's keeping people out of hospitals. But what evidence do we have that it's doing that when we're also just seeing the natural evolution of a virus, which my understanding is it tends to lead to where it becomes more transmissible, but less lethal as it continues to evolve. So how do we know it's the vaccines keeping people out of the hospital versus just the virus inevitably taking the course of being more transmissible and less lethal? So it could be both, right? So I think, I think uh, for instance, at least with the Delta ver- version of the, the virus, there were some very good studies out of places like Qatar, uh, out of Sweden, out of out of uh, the UK, uh, even out of Kaiser, Northern California, that showed uh, based on matched cohorts of vaccinated and unvaccinated people, where they unva- where, uh, where they carefully followed them over time, um, that showed that vaccine efficacy against severe disease actually stayed quite high up to six, seven, eight months after vaccination. Um, uh, there was a Swedish study that suggested that that at the end of eight months it starts to decline. Per- pretty sharply, but uh, for quite a long time, it protects against severe disease, even as the protection against uh, against being infected declines pretty sharply after two, three months. Um, so I think really it's on the basis of those studies that, that people believe, at least I believe that there's it protects against severe disease, at least against Delta. Uh, the evidence about Omicron, uh, this new variant, seems to suggest that it is much milder, the disease itself is much milder in both vaccinated and unvaccinated, that is much less likely to produce hospitalizations, much less likely to kill you. I mean, I know I've heard this general dictum that viruses tend to evolve toward milder. I don't know that that's always true, but with the case of Omicron, it it certainly has turned out to be true, which is, uh, I mean, a a great blessing. Well, I mean, because I guess I'm just observing in a, you know, more immediate circle, but I know a lot of people who have recently gotten COVID, you know, many vaccinated small handful not. And it it seems like everyone's symptoms have ultimately been the same regardless of having been vaccinated or not. So I just I I, I don't know. I I just wonder it's, you know, again, back to our original conversation of when it's sort of this groupthink narrative being told, it's really hard to know what is true and what is not, which is why I've been bringing people like you or Dr. Atlas or Dr. Martin Kolderf on the show who have been honest and have been unbiased in uh, your explanation of all this stuff, because we're really living at this time where it's it's very difficult to discern between truth and lies. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is is uh, actually comes back to this propaganda campaign we were talking about earlier. If you have at the sort of commanding heights of science people who do not respect open scientific discussion, their first instinct when they're challenged is to shut that down. You're gonna create this distrust. And that is something that we absolutely have to work to, to, to address. So, as I said, I think science is a beautiful thing. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It has produced so much knowledge. It's been useful for humans, for people. But that can only work when you have the scientific process the working way it should. It's not a high priesthood. It's, it's, a, it's a discussion, an open, structured discussion. The, the lack of trust that, that many, many, many people have 
in public health and in science is fully earned by the public health establishment, by the scientific establishment. It's brought, brought that distrust on itself by not actually following the principles of public health in, 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 in lockdowns, by not following the principles of what, how, how science actually should operate in, in, in terms of how the NIH and, and others, other uh, entities that have been um, funding scientists have operated. It's, it's led to this sort of uh, uh, the, the, the situation where um, we see that science can be, produce so many wonderful things and certainly improve our knowledge about how the way the world works. But uh, at the same time, it's it's created a class of class of people that just there's no reason to trust them, but based on the way they behaved, I, I sympathize with a lot of with folks about the inability to tell what's what's true and false because, you know, in the middle of a propaganda war, that's exactly what ha- ends up happening. Uh, it's, we shouldn't have a propaganda war here. We should have as an open scientific discussion. So when and how did this claim that the vaccines would stop transmission begin? Because you can go back to the Pfizer's chairman's comments last December on Dateline. He said he wasn't sure the vaccine would stop transmission. You can also look at Moderna. Chief medical officer told Axios last November that we need to be careful to not overinterpret the vaccines because we didn't have sufficient concrete data showing that the vaccines would reduce transmission. But then, lo and behold, we had people like Dr. Fauci, we had the CDC director, you had Joe Biden saying, hey, look, if you go out, you get vaccinated, you're not going to get COVID. How did that narrative take fold when you even have the heads of these companies a year ago warning for that to not happen? I mean, I, 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 say, I should, as like a matter of full confession, I should say I thought in January of this year that the, that the vaccines would greatly reduce transmission. Um, on the basis of that was the, the trials, the, the, the randomized trials of the vaccines. Um, the endpoints of those trials were uh, actually symptomatic COVID. And my reasoning was that if, in fact, the vaccines do reduce the risk of symptomatic COVID, which is what the trials did show, at least for two, a few months after the vaccine, well, then symptomatic people are much more likely to pass the disease on than someone who, who's not, who has asymptomatic disease. Uh, so if you prevent symptomatic disease, ipso facto, you're going to prevent trans- or reduce transmission. That's what I thought in January of this year. But then the data started coming out that that protection against symptomatic disease didn't last very long, maybe two, three months. You know, I started to see like there were countries that were had big outbreaks despite having very highly vaccinated populations, you know, in, in let's say like March, April, uh, May. Um, and it became clear that the protection against infection was short-lived. And I changed my opinion on this based on those data that came out. Um, I don't know why Joe Biden or Fauci and, and, and others didn't change their opinion also based on those data. They, they stopped, I think partly they were thinking that in order to induce people to get vaccinated, you can't tell them that you could get the disease anyways because that would decrease the demand for the vaccine. But I think I have the opposite idea. You tell people the truth based on what the data are showing you. It's, and if you tell people, look, I changed my mind when the data, here's the data on which I changed my mind and here's why I thought what I did before and here's why I think what I did now. I think people are going to trust you more and would actually increase demand for the vaccines because what would happen is people would say, well, yeah, okay, this, per- this person is telling me what the data show. They've changed their minds based on the data. And now they're also telling me that it protects against severe disease, which I still think it does for at least eight months. Like, I think that's how you build trust is by being honest when you get something wrong. Uh, follow the data and then tell and then reason with the public like they're adults rather than trying to manipulate the public, which is essentially how I think Joe Biden and uh, advised mainly, I think, by Tony Fauci has done. They like the vaccine passports and vaccine mandates are are are, are a fruit of that, right? They they want these policies in order to coerce people to get the vaccine at risk of losing your job, at risk of being able to go to restaurants to to public libraries, uh, you know, to museums, you, you name it. You, 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 can't have, you can't participate in civic life unless you get the vaccine in order to coerce people to get it rather than reasoning with people about the vaccine and say, well, here's, here's, here's who it's especially important for. Here's what the side effects are for this group. And, and it's much less for that group. And just, and just showing on, openly and honestly what the data are. I think that breeds trust and that trust helps people feel more comfortable doing the right thing for them. Well, and, and I think you're right in the sense of like, you know, you just earn my trust more by saying, hey, you know, back in January, this is what I thought. Here's why. And I think if they were just honest with people and saying, hey, look, 
that's what we thought at the time. And then Delta came along and then all of a sudden we're looking at a studies out of, you know, Provincetown, Massachusetts, where, you know, an outbreak took place and 75 percent of the cases were fully vaccinated. Now those dynamics have, you know, if, if they were just honest, but the problem is and then they just keep pushing forward with these failed strategies. I mean, like, so, for instance, we're, we're, we're all seeing with our own eyes that the vaccine is not stopping transmission, right? We're, we're seeing people left and right get Omicron, vaccinated or not. It doesn't seem to to matter at all. Uh, but yet then you've got new cities like Boston saying you have to be vaccinated to live among society here or Chicago. And it's like, why? Like, what what is it actually doing to protect society when it's not stopping transmission whatsoever? Like, what's the point of vaccine mandates right now when it doesn't stop transmission. I just, I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. You're right, Tanana. I don't understand it. There is no point to it other than to create social division and ostracism. Um, I mean, I think, I, I think if you'd ask some a proponent, they'd probably say, well, we want to coerce people into getting the vaccine, like they're being honest. When the, that policy induces such enormous social division, like people have lost their jobs because they, they don't want to get vaccinated for whatever reason, um, you know, it's at this point, the vaccine is very clear as a private decision, like it has private consequences for the va- person that's vaccinated in the sense of protecting against severe disease. That's according to my view of the data, um, but very le- little in the way of public, provi- public, like, so my vaccine actually doesn't protect you very much. If I don't, if it doesn't stop me from getting infected, vaccinated people can and do spread the disease. And in fact, if you're um, in a group of unvaccinated people and all, all of them are COVID recovered, well, that natural immunity is quite good against reinfection. There are great data from places, again, like Israel and Qatar, Sweden, Denmark, that uh, at one year, there's only a 0.3% reinfection rate, or some reason 03 and 1%, a very, very low rate of reinfection at one year if you're naturally immune. It might actually be the case that if you're among a group of unvaccinated, COVID-recovered people, that you have less risk of getting disease if you're in a group of vaccinated people who had the vaccine you know, several months ago. Quick commercial break. More with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya on the other side. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. You could be one of them. Sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be. With the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X, folks say this new solar generator from Four Patriots is worth its weight in gold. Why? Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Or other devices like an electric blanket, microwave, RV air conditioner, or even an electric wheelchair. You also get 12 outlets, including four AC outlets so you can power more devices at once, and two USB-C outlets, which can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot power generators. Go to 4patriots.com Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com Lisa. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. So South Africa just recently, you know, they saw this Omicron wave hit first. Now it's subsiding. They've actually stopped contact tracing, quarantining. They've sort of changed their policy now that 80 percent of the country has some level of immunity from either prior illness or vaccines. What, what do you think Omicron will do to the United States in terms of reaching endemic status, herd immunity in the sense of, you know, it, it seems like this thing is just so contagious. The incubation period is so short that so many people in the country are ultimately going to get this thing. Yeah, I think, I think um, um, the illusion that you can protect yourself from getting the virus, if you just are careful enough, is, is uh, it's already on its way of being shattered, right? We've seen this enormous seasonal wave, and Omicron, I think, has just fueled that um, throughout the Northeast and throughout much of the United States, actually. That is, I think, inevitable. Because, again, we don't have a technology from stopping it. Uh, in South Africa, what it's done is it's actually, uh, I mean, interestingly, uh, reduced the fear about the virus. Because the consequences of getting an Omicron illness seems to be much lower, right? There's much lower risk of death, much lower risk of hospitalization. And the end point, then, is of a, a, is a decoupling of cases from hospitalizations and deaths. Like in, the, in many... Uh, Previous way, especially in 2020, whenever cases went up, hospitalizations and deaths followed, sort of like night follows day. In the the vaccine era in mid 2021, um, actually in many countries there was already this decoupling. Like when when the vaccine was used to protect the old, so that even if the old got it, they would they would not go be hospitalized or die. There you'd see a very increase, sharp increase in cases with no concomitant increase in deaths or hospitalizations. You saw that in the UK, for instance. We saw that in Sweden, for instance. We saw that in Iceland, actually. Uh, in the, in the, uh, now with Omicron, you're seeing that basically in South Africa, a huge increase in cases with no, no real increase in deaths. And that's in a population that's not particularly, particularly well vaccinated. Um, I think the same is likely to be true as Omicron spreads in the US. There'll be this decoupling of cases and deaths. And that decoupling really is the end state. The cases we can't stop. The cases will continue forever in waves, seasonal, regional waves. But it will no longer produce the deaths that it once did. Are we in endemic status now as a country? Or, or where do you think we are in terms of, is this still a pandemic or is it an endemic now? Uh, it's hard to say biologically. Exactly. I mean, so endemic, what, the, what it means is, in herd immunity, what it means is every additional person infected infects one or fewer people. In that sense, we're not at herd immunity because the, 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 the number of cases is rising. So each additional person infected. But, but in a different sense, the pandemic could be over if, as soon as we decide it's over. The pandemic really, is, in some sense, is, is the set of responses we've taken to the biological fact of the spread of this virus. The, the uh, herd immunity means that there's sufficiently large fraction of the population that, uh, t- that isn't uh, it, it isn't at risk of spreading the disease very, very sharply if they were to be exposed, because if they're exposed to it, they, they don't get it. With a virus like this one, you can move in and out of herd immunity, right? You can get, you, you can be protected against infection for a while, and then your immunity de- declines over time against, against infection. And so you get it again. The common cold is like this, right? There's herd immunity for common cold. Your protection against it declines over time, and then uh, you might be exposed to this to like another the same coronavirus that that uh, before, and then you you get it again several times in your life. But the second, third, fourth time, it doesn't produce severe disease because you have immune mechanisms, cellular immunity, and other mechanisms of immunity that reduce the harm from being infected. Reduce it so you don't you don't end up in the hospital. You don't die if you get it. It's just a cold. That is, I think, the end point of this epidemic. Herd immunity, endemic equilibrium, what it means, all that means is uh, is that the virus isn't spreading sharply because there's a sufficient number of immune people. We'll have that for times. But the key thing is not that. The key thing is 
the protection against severe disease, which I think we are in the midst of getting. Um, naturally immune people seem to have a lot of protection against severe, severe reinfections. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I think that that's the, the direction we're headed. It's this decoupling of cases and, and, uh, and severe outcomes. Do you think we should be more careful in our vaccination status in the sense, I mean, we are seeing myocarditis and heart issues, uh, you know, correlated to the vaccines, particularly among younger people who aren't as susceptible to ending up in the hospital or dying. I mean, should there be a little bit more transparency and honesty around some of those conversations and the potential adverse effects of the vaccines on certain groups of people? Absolutely. Right. I think the vaccination should be a personal medical decision based on the, the, the risk of the vaccine to the person in that, in that group um, and, and the, the benefits of vaccine for, for that group, right? So a, a young male who is COVID recovered, um, is there any reason to vaccinate them? They face the risk of myocarditis from the, from the vaccine, which is, you know, it's not, it's enormous, but it's like it's, you know, one in 5,000, one in, you know, something on that order um, versus, uh, where, where, but the benefit they get is so little because they're already COVID recovered. Um, whereas an older person who's not been exposed to the virus previously uh, faces a high risk of death or, or, or you know, high meaning like four, three, four, five percent of death if they were to get infected, um, the vaccine might be quite a good idea. Um, so it really depends on who you are, your, your medical circumstances. It should be a personal medical decision you make in consultation with your physician, not something that's forced on you by public health in, 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 in the way it has been. But do you think physicians are up to that task in the sense of I have found in my conversations with a lot of different people that some doctors actually don't seem to have as full of knowledge of like data and the bigger picture of things like someone one time was like, well, Trump got the vaccine to me because I made the decision to not get the vaccine. And the only reason I was vocal with it is I felt like someone like me can take bullets more easily than someone getting fired for making the same decision that doesn't have the platform that I have. So I decided to go out publicly and try, you know, I wrote that op-ed in, in Newsweek, really trying to articulate the fact that people making this decision aren't rubes. Like they've actually really thought through this and it doesn't make sense for them personally, whether they're young and healthy, such as myself, or they have prior, you know, immunity, right? And so that's why I went out and and, and did that. But, you know, it, I had a doctor one time be like, well, you know, Trump got vaccinated. And I'm like, well, he's like 75 and, you know, his health condition is entirely different than mine. You know, he probably is a little overweight. He's much older than me. So his risk is severely higher than mine. So like that doesn't even make sense. So I, I don't know. I mean, are doctors really up to that task in the sense a lot of them really haven't gone through the data in the same way that you have? I mean, I, I think traditionally the way that doctors get educated about these kinds of data is not by reading the papers themselves amazingly, um, but by participating in professional activities where they get essentially like the summaries of this information put to them, right? There's these things called continuing medical education credits that every doctor is supposed to get so that, they, that they're always learning. The way that the discussion about the vaccines and uh, about sort of how to think about natural immunity has been spread through the medical community has been, been really lacking in my view. A lot of the educational activities have emphasize the importance of vaccination without talking through the nuances about who it's really useful for, uh, what the side effect profiles are. And it's been in service of a public health goal to get everyone vaccinated rather than a, a personal health goal to make sure that the doctor is giving you the best possible advice for your own personal health circumstance. I think if we shift back to a, a normal footing where doctors are looking out for the, their patients as opposed to playing the part of public health enforcers for the, the population at large, we, we will have doctors giving good reasonable advice again. But that has to be a decision made by public health authorities. Places like the NIH play an enormously important role in that. Uh, so when it's led by someone like, uh, like uh, Francis Collins or Tony Fauci, who have essentially an ideological, almost seems, commitment to making, forcing everyone, no matter what the harm to, to society, to get the vaccine, regardless of whether they, they, they uh, consent to it or not, you're going to get this distrust, not just in public health, but in doctors as well. And what you said is right. I mean, like, I think a lot of 
people have lost trust with their doctors as a result. I, again, that I don't think that's a good thing, Lisa. I think that doctors, it's really necessary that we be able to trust our doctors because doctors are so important for the health of personal health and for the health of the population at large. Um, and I think medicine is going to need to do some self-reflection to try to get that trust back. Because I, I've been fortunate to, you know, I've reached out to a ton of different people of all different walks of life in the medical and science fields to try to get information for them and to try to learn that way. Because, you know, that's how we all learn the most is by asking a bunch of questions and then trying to take that information from people and trying to come to, you know, what I think is the the correct information or the right decision with all of that, which is how I, you know, concluded to not get the the vaccine of also just having questions about, you know, most vaccines, we've got like five to 10 years of data. We don't have that for these. And so if I'm not high risk, I'd rather just wait it out and see what we, you know, learn from it moving forward, you know, versus obviously higher risk people might not be able to make that same decision because they're more at risk. But we're just at this such an odd place in society where it's just, uh, you know, the truth really isn't out there as much. You know, Dr. Scott Atlas had said something when I interviewed him recently that really stood out to me. And he had just talked about sort of the profound impact that even the NIH has on science and the fact that so much of science is funded by the NIH and the United States and some of, some of these other agencies. And, and so, therefore, it really dictates sort of the, the broader landscape of science and the conversations that we're having. Can you just talk about the funding aspect of it and how that is controlled by some of these government agencies and the problem of that? Sure. Uh, so uh, I, I've spent my career at a, at a medical school, at an academic medical school. Um, in order to advance your career in a, in a place like Stanford University in, a med- in the medical school, you have to have NIH funding. It's, it's almost a requirement, right? It's, it's just marker of success as a scientist that you are able to garner funding from competitive funding from the IH. Like every time I put a grant in, grant application in, I think it's like, you know, one in one in ten or one in one in fifteen grants actually get funded. So it's a it's a, a, a great success if you manage to do that. Um, now the problem is that with that is that it creates these incentives that you have to align your research agenda with the NIH. And sometimes that's reasonable. The NIH uh, may direct scientists toward uh, studying something like Alzheimer's because it's such a serious you know, problem for so many. And, and putting a lot of scientists' minds focused on that one problem could be a very productive thing. But it can also, as we found through the epidemic, be uh, a danger. So you get one person, Tony Fauci, who's been sitting on top of, of uh, a huge pile of money funding the, the careers and making and breaking the careers of countless scientists over 40 years based on his priorities for what infectious disease research focus on, what epidemiologists focus on. Well, um, you know, a lot of scientists stayed silent, even though they were uncomfortable with the policies in the lockdown, because they didn't want to risk not getting funded by Tony Fauci's NIAID. When Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, essentially says, these great Brankton Declaration people are, real, are are terrible. We should wage a propaganda war against them. Well, no one, no scientist who's thinking about their career, unless they're very brave or very foolish, is going to speak up and say, "Look, this is uh, this is um, uh, these lockdowns are a really bad idea." I, I agree with the Great Brankton Declaration. Very, very few scientists will, will want to do that at risk of their career. I mean, I can understand why, right? It's they they're working on things that are remote from from COVID or the Great Brankton Declaration. They just there's no reason for them to speak up, to stick their neck out, and so they won't, even if they probably should. Um, so what you have is a situation where a, a legitimate role for the NIH is to help direct the attention of scientists on, on important problems. But you, we've seen the leadership of the NIH, including Collins and Fauci, them use that legitimate power illegitimately to essentially silence scientific discussion. Um, and it's undermined trust in science, it's undermined trust in public health, and as we, as we just talked about, it's undermined trust in medicine. It had enormous negative consequences for institutions that I think most Americans before the pandemic had a lot of respect for. Is that self-preservation? Because obviously there's been concerns that the NIH funding went to, you know, the funding of bat coronaviruses and that research at the Wuhan laboratory. I mean, is it self-preservation from Dr. Fauci, or why has he adopted this approach? Like, what's behind it in your estimation? Uh, I don't know whether it was um, a lab leak, but uh, I, what I do know is that uh, the NIH 
with the the explicit sign-off of Fauci and Collins, funded gain-of-function research that was incredibly controversial. So in 2014, there was actually a pause put on gain-of-function research because there was a paper where uh, that someone had published in Science, funded by the NIH in part, uh, that it, that managed to to take uh, an avian flu virus and make it able to infect human cells. People were very, very upset by this. Um, the, the argument for why they did this was, well, we need to find out how many mutations it would take in order for the, this avian flu virus to mutate so they could infect humans. And it turns out it wasn't that many. Um, so they're like, oh, well, we have to be prepared for this. Um, but at the same time, people were worried what, what, there could be a lab leak. Lots and lots of examples of lab leaks that have happened, dangerous ones. Uh, and so there was a pause put on this where in order to do research that involved this gain-of-function work, gain-of-function meaning you take a virus and give it new capabilities it didn't previously have, you needed to get explicit sign-off from Tony Fauci and from Francis Collins. And they signed off a whole bunch of grants from 2014 on, despite the pause. Um, and um, so they bear responsibility for the funding, and including, by the way, Peter Daszak and the, and the uh, Equal Health Alliance, which cooperated with the, with the Wuhan lab um, very closely. So they funded a lot of this work. And I, I don't know for a fact that that's what's motivating them, because that's, uh, that's frankly, in retrospect, an embarrassing thing that they did. It was a, a lapse in judgment. It wasn't a wise use of, of NIH resources, of American tax law paid taxpayer dollars. Um, and uh, I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me to know that, that this is partly what's motivating them. I don't think it's all, it can't be all of it because why focus on these destructive lockdowns? I think that partly is just a, a failure to understand that there were alternate policies that were available that would have redu reduced the harm from the virus and also from the lockdowns. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I do think that, that this sort of desire to like, make up for this poor judgment that they had uh, must have played some role. Well, I also just think there's a level of arrogance because someone had mentioned to me uh, earlier on in the pandemic to sort of like explain Dr. Fauci to me is this is a guy who flew that Ebola patient from Texas, I think, to the NIH in Maryland so that he could treat her himself, put on a hazmat suit for the cameras, did a bunch of interviews when she would have just been fine, like staying in Texas. So it was like, basically, he like did this whole thing for himself, like you know, so that he could like basically be in the glory. I agree. I mean, there's some element of self-promotion in his, in his, um, in the way he behaves that it's, um, it's sort of unseemly. Like, frankly, should we, should we really know the name of the head of, the head of the NAID? Yeah, I, I think the head of the NAID is an important position, but it shouldn't be someone who's just so in the public eye. You know, do you think that part of the problem is so we see this with like politicians very often, right? You've got like all these people, like most of our leaders, you know, I mean, you don't have to get any, but like Pelosi, even McConnell, like all these guys have been in the public office for like decades. So it's like, how do you solve some of the problems that you've literally been a part of making? Right. And so do you think some of that is true for these public health bureaucrats in the sense of, you know, they've been in government for so long that they're sort of out of the game or they can't really solve these problems or bring a fresh approach when they've kind of been a part of the problem or they've been a part of the system for too long? Do we need to kind of take a fresh look at bringing in, you know, different voices and different people who have, you know, been out in the field a little bit fresher and, you know, not been bureaucrats for so long? I do. I think I think that that uh, someone like Dr. Fauci, who's been in his position at the head of the NID for forty years uh, on that order, something on that order, or 30, 35 years. I, mean, I don't know the exact number, but some a very, very, very long time. Just by dint of being in such power for so long, you essentially create this insular sense where where like you know no one's going to talk back to you, no one's going to like tell to contradict you, and you you there's this feedback loop where you start to think you're always right. Um, because no one's contradicting you always, everyone's always praising you. Um, it's really dangerous for any leader to be in that position, right? The the the, the Greeks, uh, the, the the Romans, when a when a successful Roman general, they'd have this major parade through Rome. They'd have someone that someone whispering in their ear in the, at the head of the parade, even if it was, everyone was praising him. Look, you're only mortal. You're not a god. You're only mortal, right? So, um, I think someone in a position like um, Tony Fauci for. You know, for such a long time, where he's controlled the budgets of and careers of countless incredibly bright scientists, all of whom are telling, essentially, have very strong incentives to like to tell him, you know, that he's doing a good job. Um, it's it's a dangerous kind of mixture of 
of power and uh, science, um, and and it, and it creates a kind of corruption that's really hard to undo unless you have essentially term limits or something. I think no no one human should ever be in that position for so long. You know, so you've congratulations on the Academy for Science and Freedom with Hillsdale College. You, Dr. Scott Atlas, and Dr. Martin Koldorf had started. Uh, this academy, you know, what do you guys hope to accomplish with it? And what are sort of the goals and the objectives with it? To me, it's, it's twofold. Uh, so I think, I think we've talked a lot about, about the, what's motivated us through this whole conversation, Lisa. I think the, the trust in science, because of the lock, the failures in the lock, around the lockdowns, is at a low point. And in particular, the ability for scientists to talk to one another freely without fear of canceling is really harmed the discussion during lockdown. That needs reform. So one is to restore the ability for scientists to be free within science itself. And uh, that may involve reforms beyond just the lockdowns themselves, that scientists should be free to talk to one another without this sort of propaganda of war against it. The other thing is, um, what role does science play in a free society? Science is important, but we've had during this pandemic this idea that science ought to completely structure all of our civic life. But in fact, that's not right. Science helps you understand that uh, about the way the physical world works. If I do A, B might happen. But that doesn't say that I want B to happen. Um, maybe I want C to happen, right? So I, I'll do D instead, which D produces C. Whether you, you want B or C, well, that's not a scientific question. That, that's a question of ethics, of morality, of politics, of, of a whole bunch of other social values that scientists have no ex special expertise. Uh, science and free society is not, are not the rulers. The scientists and free society are advisors, and, and uh, the people who um, make decisions should take that into account, but it, it doesn't determine what, what's the right thing to do. Is it right to adopt a set of policies that mainly protect the laptop class? at the expense of the working class and the poor and the vulnerable. I mean, that's essentially what science said to do. We have to stop the virus from spreading, so we adopt these policies to protect only a certain class of people. Well, is that right? Well, scientists have no monopoly and should have no monopoly in that discussion in a free society. And so part of the academy is to, is to restore the proper place of science in a free society and to restore the ability for scientists to freely discuss with one another. Well, I appreciate you guys doing that. And, you know, you guys have been so uh, brave and have had so much courage and really bring truth in a time where it's dire and, you know, it's dying and it's needed. You know what? Before we go, what should the path forward be for the country and, and how we deal with COVID? Obviously, knowing what we know now and, and knowing what we don't know in the future. But right now, where we are in this, what should the path forward look like? I, I think a few things. So one, we should vow never to to disrupt the, the lives of children ever again. We should restore normal life to children literally everywhere in the country. There's no good reason to think about children as particular, particularly super spreaders, not since the beginning of the epidemic, and the harm to them is just immoral. Uh, so we should end, we should restore normal life to children immediately. Next, we should stop a mass asymptomatic testing. Right. We shouldn't be forcing people. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm in favor of, of ra rapid antigen tests and other tests that allow people to, to take charge of the risk in their lives. Right. So before you go visit grandma, you want to check if you're positive. That makes some sense to me. Uh, so we should allow that to happen or we should, have, we should encourage that. But on the other hand, forced testing and forced vaccination and coercion, that should end immediately. Um, because it, it's not, it's produced social division without actually doing much as far as uh, public health benefit. Those two steps would go a long way. It, it restore, and for instance, and, and, and part of that would be ending vaccine mandates and ending vaccine passports. I think it would go a long way toward starting to restore the trust we'll need to actually address uh, the, the, the remaining risk around this virus. Well, hopefully people adopt that. You know, there seems to be some hope when you've got people like Governor Jared Polis of a Democrat from Colorado basically saying that, you know, hey, the medical emergency phase of all this is over. You know, let's kind of move forward with our lives. So praying more governors take your advice and, and we can go back to, to normal. And I, I just feel like there's been so much harm to society, even in just this blame game and, you know, turning on our neighbors. And it just, you know, there's just been so much ugliness to the past couple of years. So praying people heed your your words of advice there. Uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thank you so much for everything you've done. So much respect for you 
And I just appreciate your work and your voice and all of this. And, and thank you so much for your time, sir. It's an honor. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to talk with you. I want to thank Dr. Jay Bhattacharya again for such a great interview and just the honesty. It's so nice to have people like him to turn to during all this chaos, all the noise, all the craziness. I want to thank you guys at home for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review. You can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Lisa Marie Booth. I want to thank our team, producer John Cassio and Drew Steele, who stepped up this week to bring you this podcast. Executive producers Debbie Myers and speaker Newt Gingrich as well, all part of the Gingrich 360 network and team. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. This new solar generator has double the capacity and is expandable, so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot Power Generators. Go to 4Patriots.com slash Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4Patriots.com slash Lisa. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.